Yeah. We never realised in the 80s and 90s what riches we had. But that's what I wanted to write the book about. I wanted to write the book about the development of Duke and Doe, how it's changed. Hi, this is Mick Tully and you're listening to Mixed Martial Arts. I'm talking to uh, Andy Gibney, who just doesn't seem to really care what level he is, he's just, <laughs> as long as he's Andy Gibney. Andy, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks. So, we're going to start at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I see you, I was going to use the term, I see you fingering a book there, but that's probably not the best term to use. But you, you, you're, you're known as a martial artist and uh-huh. an author. Am I known and, as an author? Okay. Yes, you are. No, well, okay. hopefully, so, you'll, hopefully you'll be more known as an author, as I say, even more. That's it. So, we're going to start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. How did you get into martial arts? Well, the first lesson I ever went to was a Shotokan karate class when I was 15. Loved it, but my dad wouldn't give me the quid for the lessons. He said it was for Nancy boys because he liked boxing. Right. So I couldn't go. So I, so that was a three-year hiatus until I could afford the pound. And then uh, and then that was it. <laughs> then I started with Shotokan in 1981. So this is my 36th year of training now. And where, whereabouts, whereabouts was this? Rushton in Northamptonshire. Right. So how long did you stay at the uh, Shotokan for? Uh, well, I loved it. You know, you, you just take to something. I thought it was absolutely amazing. So, and... Uh, I couldn't get enough of it. And then we were at a party about, about oh, I don't know, 18 months into it or something like that. And these skinheads turned up. Right. The game crashed the party. And there were some senior grades upstairs with a couple of girls. Um, I think they were talking about politics. Anyway, they're upstairs. And, uh, and when these skinheads came in, they didn't want to come down and help get them out. So we were like the white belts and the yellow belts. And what happened was, in the long, long, long ago, the only phones you had connected to walls. And so these guys came in, and my girlfriend, who was 16, 17 at the time, so I was 18, 19, whatever I was. And uh, so this guy starts to put his finger on the, on the little nibs that he used to do, where he used to cut someone off. So he's trying to phone the police. So he just puts his finger on this On the telephone. Yeah, cuts it off. So she's like, don't do that. So she tries again. He says, you're not phoning the police does it again she says if you do this again I'm going to hit you and I'm thinking oh shit because I'm right in front between her and, the, and these five skinheads and, it, and this little fella puts the thing on there and she immediately hit him straight across the head with the receiver and that was the first time I'd ever seen a telephone receiver used as a weapon before wow. and I was both amazed and terrified at the same time I thought oh god it's going to go horribly wrong now anyway she clumped him straight across there which really stunned him as well because they were quite sturdy back in them days yeah <coughs> so she belted him with this thing he stuck stumbled back I stepped in as he started to move forward one of one of the guys upstairs who was a Kempo black belt but smashed out of his brains at the time right. stumbled down the stairs and then the police turned up from somewhere it was like the cavalry had arrived right right, right at the last minute right yeah. at the last minute so anyway this was this was the fight or the near fight that made me realise that my Shadokan Karate was completely useless in the hallway of a house. And I thought, I'm five foot seven and I'm never going to get a kick that well. What am I going to do next? And uh, there was a local Kempo school, like a five, six miles away. So we went to this class this one night, me and Deb and another fella. We go to this school and, and it was packed, all dressed in black, because we were used to white, all dressed in black, like real badass guys. But they were screaming as they went across her. You know, like, no, not these. They were screaming, right? Absolutely (laughs) off their heads. Wow, wow, wow. We sat on these mats and we went, we fucking want that. (laughs) Yeah. That's what we want. We want to be mental like that. And I stayed up that three and a half years. Uh, And was this this Ed Parker's Kempo or? 
<laughs> no one ever worked out what it was. Uh, it was it was a guy. I've no idea what his lineage was or anything, but it was quite good. It was it was great fun, and it was very practical for the nineteen eighties. And uh, and of course, uh, the fella, one of the fellows who, who trained there, I ended up sharing a house with it. It was his house, and he had all the early Bruce Lee books, Art and Philosophy of Bruce Lee, that by Santo and those sorts of books. Yes, and I just couldn't get enough of it. These were all brilliant. But, but I just had no idea. I had no idea Bob Breen existed. I had no idea Jeet Kune Do in its form was in this country. I had no idea Dan and Asanto had come to this country. I didn't know anything. No such thing as internet. No. So, so we were all stumbling around. And then one day in 1986, uh, I was reading Karate and Oriental Arts and Terry Barnett had written a, a review of the first Larry Hartzell seminar. And at the time, in the Fighting Arts International, there'd also been a, a long series of articles about Gary Spears, who was mental by all accounts. Yes. And, uh, I mean, I met him once, briefly. And, uh, one uh, guy I always wanted to meet. No, he was great. I mean, we uh, was at um, a seminar up at Huddersfield that Danny Goober and, and Percival were teaching, and, and Gary was there with his broken leg. I've no idea what did, his huge beard, and that was it. Yeah. It's the only time I've met him. So I had a choice, at the time, of going to Liverpool and doing a, a Gary Spears seminar, or going to London and training with Larry Hartzell. And I lived in um, Kettering in Northamptonshire then, and there was a great uh, train service there, and it wasn't a great train service to Liverpool, and on that, my life changed. Really? Yeah. Uh, and that was with the late, great Larry Hartzell, the first time you saw him, right? Yeah, absolutely. In, uh, in March of 87, and it, it just utterly, completely blew my mind. It was just, and he didn't teach that much, to be honest. You know, like a 12-count lock flow, a little bit of stick work, learning to slip a punch rather than block a punch. Bloody hell, you can do that. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. Larry was so, you know, quietly spoken. But every time, there was, must be about 80 people, every time he talked about Bruce Lee, everybody gathers in. Yeah. You know, and you, and you can feel so leaning in uh, <laughs> as he's talking about Bruce Lee. And we all go, this man knew Bruce Lee. And it was just amazing, really. And, and Terry was helping and Rick Fay was helping teach. Yeah. And, and in a fit of bravery, I went up and said to Terry, um, do you run a class here? And he had uh, had a brief split with Bob at the time. And he said, I'm teaching privates. And I said, can I, can I come to London and learn with you? And he said, yeah, sure. So we sort of conversed by letter, of all things. Yes. Which I've still got. I've still got those letters. I found them when I was doing the research for the book. Right. And, uh, and Ter- Terry charged me £20 for three hours. Really? Yeah, 1987. It cost £8 to get, uh, to get the train. Yeah. Terry, Terry's awesome, man. He's, uh, for me, he's the most, easily the most influential person in my life, not just martial arts. But uh, you know, every t- every now and again, when like when the black dog comes on me, or uh, you know, uh, you know, you got you got an angel on one side and a devil on the other. A good friend of mine, Ty Campos, says it, what he does is yeah, he has Arjun Chai on one side, mm-hmm. hit him, hit him, and then on the other side he has Guru Dan. You yeah. know what I mean? And I uh, I pretty much have Al Pizand on one side saying hit him, he deserves it, he deserves it, and then the other shoulder it's Terry Barnett saying no, Mick, yeah, yeah, try and walk the peaceful path. But so. How long did you? How long did you stay with Terry on the? Eighteen months. Eighteen, 18, months. 18 months, and then I think I drove him completely around the twist because he said, "I've got to retire from teaching for a while," and I, and I think I think it just drove him mad. To be honest, <laughs> just like this, yeah, this no, guy, Terry's got the patience of Job. So this, this, this guy is an ass. Anyway, so so whatever reason, because um, we were in a garage in Woodford, in this big double garage in Woodford, at his mate's house, Dave. And uh, so he was there. Steve Martin started training as well. Yeah, Not Steve's awesome. Yeah. yeah, Steve's still doing it. Isn't yeah, yeah, I saw Steve, him. Had, Steve had another friend of his. I forgot what his name was now. But there likes to be four of us. Sometimes be two, sometimes four, whatever. And, was it uh, Clive Elliott, was it? No, 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 no. Not at all. No, this is, I think, prior to Clive training. Wow. Okay. So, so this was 88, summer of 88. And, and uh, 
and Terry said, I mean, Terry took me through some really brilliant stuff. I mean, Terry was just like Dan, he used to chuck loads and loads of stuff in three hours, we'd do two hours of chicken dough, one hour of curly, and, and you'd get so much stuff. And I'd go back and I'd open a school in April of 87. And, um, and I'd be learning all this stuff and going back and just going to the guys, you know, small group, like six, seven people. Oh, God, it's got to learn, it's got to learn. Yeah. Anyway, and then I had a training partner and we did all sorts of stuff. So we, we trained probably about every two weeks, but I was going to seminars like they were going out of business. I mean, right. in the 80s and early 90s. I know I did between 1987 and 1992, when I went to the Philippines, I'd done 42 seminars in that time period. And I just went to everything. I think I, think, I, think I, must have, I must have read nearly every one of those reviews of the seminars that you used to do in the magazines. Because you'd have... There, it, there was, for a while there, I think it was just prior to going to the Philippines, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. But that whenever there was a seminar, whenever there was a seminar being, a, you know, being featured in a magazine, it would either be you, I'm trying to think who else would be there, uh, on the write-ups, there was somebody else. God, my, it's my memory. My memory is killing me now. But you used to write quite a lot for magazines at the time as well, didn't you? Yeah, well, that probably came a little bit later, in all honesty. I remember writing the, the review of the first Terry and Ralph Jones seminar. And it was Ralph that I spent three and a half years with. And Ralph, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do with my book is talk about Ralph Jones. Because talk about the quiet man. Oh, unsung hero. Absolutely. And a wonderful bloke. Yeah. And so funny, yeah. so knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Like he's studying cosmology now. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I interviewed him there last year, Inspire, uh, but he's just so quiet, so unassuming. Like you know, he won't mind me saying this, but at the JKD tribe last year, he he came out in the first. He did the first Porsche, and I said to him that was awesome. And he was like, literally, he went, "You don't know how much that means to me, Mick." That was all. He goes, "Coming from you," and I was like. Dude, you're Ralph Jones. Because he was nervous about getting up there. Oh, yeah, I'm not surprised. I can't, I can't well, get he, that. You know, he doesn't even light his light, light, hide his light under a bushel. You can't even find a bushel with Ralph. No. You know, he's just so unsung. And, and it's one of the things that I wanted to talk about in my book, which I did, and praised him. Because what he, his training approach was so different from Terry's. He stripped everything back to basics. We went back. Some of the stuff I'm teaching today on this it goes back to Ralph's days. Right. And, and uh, you know, taught me about how to intercept properly, how to make a lot of the stuff that Terry had done but make it functional because there was so much knowledge. But you had to try and, how does it all work? How does it all fit together? Training with Terry was like a seminar every, every three hours. Yes. Ralph, we did two hours. And it was like, well, how are you going to make that work then? What are you going to do? Really questioning the art in a completely different way. I was so lucky to get both of those two guys. Yeah. You know, seniors. I didn't even know they were seniors. I just, you know, went along. Um, you know, and then I was going to Orpington, so Northamptonshire, we did drive down to Orpington, this shitty little bloody 1100 Fiesta, it, God, it was awful. <laughs> and, um, you know, or get in the train, I'd write all my notes on the way back with the hands shaking because of the training that I'd done before. Hilarious. Well, it's, it's funny you said that because just as you were saying that, I was thinking about it, you know, and, you know, Terry's a very quiet and, and assuming man as well. But uh, when you talk about their training methodology and the way they approach it, it is very yin and yang because mm. Terry, Terry will turn around and say that he isn't special or anything like that. But, you know, there is a definite attribute set, you know, even Rick Young said, yeah, Rick Young saying Terry's boxing. Yeah, and even, uh, you know, Eric Paulson of all people. Eric says, Terry's got a temper, you know. And I was like, well, I'd never like to see it because trust me, if it came out, I'm sure it'd be well justified. And Eric said, we're at the Santo Academy once and I tagged him with a shot. He goes, he hit me with a five-punch combination. He said, I had no, that, yeah, that I, I had nothing, nothing fast. to give anything. Well, yeah. He's fast, he's accurate. Accurate, his, you know, so, 
Uh, I've I've often said I think I think you know especially all the time that I trained with Terry I think I'm I was just like a special project it was like this guy's got basically no coordination and he's just a slogger and I'll see if I can help him whereas with you know with Ralph Ralph is JKD for normal people so if you're if you don't have the attribute set uh, and you haven't got the time to build that attribute set. Ralph's the guy who'll go, well, do you know what? Yeah, we can, I can tailor make, uh, you know, I actually look at that and I think that Ralph's more JKD for the common man than, uh, any, well, you look at Phil Norman, you know, he's just a freak of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, Rick Young, forget Mr. about Major. it. Yeah. yeah, forget about it. And then Bob, you know, Bob is ageless, he's like the Benjamin Button now. Bob Breen is a Benjamin Button of JKD. And then, uh, and then you've got Terry. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Ralph who just... As I said, it really does, it freaks me out sometimes because a lot of people, like who, Ralph, mm. who? Well, the other one that no one knows about is Paul Scott. Do you remember Paul Scott? I don't know. Paul Scott was the first guy to go to America to trade with Dan. And uh, bearded guy, real tall, used to, used to draw every seminar, never made notes, used to do his stick drawings. And Ollie Batts booked him for, a, he was from Cambridge, and uh, Ollie Batts booked him for a seminar once, and, and Paul, completely did Larry Castle seminar from the stick drawings. Had amazing. Got into photography, gave up the, the martial arts. He's in um, in Way of the Warrior that Dan's in. Yeah. Paul's in the background. Really? He's the first guy who ever went to America, yeah, even before Bob. Wow. As I understand it, anyway. Yeah, so then how did you meet Richard Pastello? Uh, that was through um, a wonderful man called uh, Martin Hill, he was called at the time. Uh, he became Martin Sterling. Martin used to bring over loads and loads, brought up Joe Petit, uh, Tim Tackett, um, Richard, I can't remember all the other guys we used to train with. We tra- he did seminars with Larry, all sorts. And he had this place called um, the Academy. Yeah, uh, imagine if you titled yeah. in the lace market in Nottingham. <laughs> and um, oh, it was oh, it was awful. In Nottingham. Yeah. Yes, I know exactly who you're about. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was awful. This place. Yeah. You go down these stairs, and everything reeked of damp. Yes. You know, it was just. It was. It's one of those places. I'm glad I didn't have to train every week, but it was awesome. It was just brilliant because you used to go and you'd go down the stairs and, I'm, and I met Tackett there and I met, I don't even know how many people I met there. Anyway, in September of 1990, there's Richard. You know, Richard Pastillo's coming over. Now, I'd only known about Richard Pastillo through the back part of uh, Art Philosophy of Jeet Kune Yeah. And I always wanted to meet all the originals, you see, and I did in the end. So, uh, so, so there, there was Richard. And, and at the time, no one took notes like I took notes. I had a notebook for every single seminar, and people like O'Malley and Pat O'Malley and, uh, and John Harvey, it's called me Scribe, because I just right. write everything down. Well, when you're researching a book, those notes are awesome, I tell you, <laughs> they're great. I so really wish, Rick, Young, uh, Rick Fraser always said to me, he goes, the one thing you're going to regret in life is not taking notes. He goes, you turn up, you have a crack, and you, you have a laugh with the lads, and he said, yeah, and I've seen you when you teach. Mm-hmm. He goes, you're teaching stuff and you can't remember where you got that from. And I'm like, I can't remember where I was last week. Mm-hmm. But notes are very, very important. I, I, I've got books and books and books of them. I stopped really taking them at about 92. And I would, then I would write bits that I, that I knew, uh, you know, that experiences and that sort of stuff. But actually, everything was in those notebooks. I've still got more. And, um, and that's, you know, it tells you in there. And Richard looked at me writing all this stuff down. And he said, oh, you've got a different approach. And, and I liked him from the beginning. I mean, Richard was 48 when I met him. Right. And he's 75 now. He's a cool guy. He's a very, very cool guy. So, so that you know, I've seen... It's funny watching Richard, because I'm always like, hmm, how far behind am I now? I can see where 
where he's going, this is what I have to look forward to. Okay, so I will never find my glasses because he'll put them down and I'll find them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but my temper will become less, which was good, yeah. which is the way it was. Uh, so, so that's where I met him. And, uh, but right. he must have been, you know, at 48, he was still, he was still a physical, physical specimen at that, that, in that time. Oh, he's always been terrific. Some, sometimes, a bit like Dan, you know, sometimes the bat plays night. Yeah. But other than that, Richard has always been... Uh, Richard looks better now, probably, than he did in his 60s. He's lost some weight. You know, he moves really well for a man of 75, unbelievably well. The only thing that, that ever sort of betrays his age at all now is the, the travelling ties him out and he didn't use to. So, yeah. so he'll rest a little bit more. But when I first met Kakoi, um, when I first brought Kakoi over here, Kakoi Kinetti, in, in 19, I don't know what year that was, 1998, he was 78 years old then. Right. And, uh, and so that was interesting because you saw the difference between him and Richard, which had been that much younger, with the amount of energy, but also the amount of, uh, just the amount that Kakoi would sleep when we were driving, you know, that sort of stuff, which Richard didn't do. Uh. But, you know, we brought him over for four or five years, and you just, I just got to the stage where I was thinking, I hope he doesn't die in England. <laughs> I'm going to be in so much trouble. So that was interesting. Kakoi was, was the most amazing man I ever met, ever. Really, and another guy I wish I, I wish I'd have met. Yeah, what what, what was it? The just a, is it just the life he lived? Because you know that's a, he's a Hollywood movie. Kakoi Kinetti is a Hollywood movie. right there, isn't he? Kakoi is Yoda in an embodied form. He hadn't had the ears. Yeah, he he, he, <laughs> he was so funny because what number one? He never stops laughing and never stops telling you terrible jokes. And even if they weren't funny, he'd point at you and laugh, and you'd be laughing with him. He was so lovely. And he used to stay with my um, with my girlfriend at the time. He used to stay with his her, her mum. So he'd right. stay in his bungalow. And so he'd be over for two weeks, and we'd go off. And we sometimes we uh, we <clears throat> I took him to Warwick Castle. I took him to the Tower of London. You know, he took him to all that stuff. Got a picture of him next to the Robin Hood statue in Nottingham. He loved history. He loved all sorts of stuff. We, I took him to this this um, English heritage site near where I live, and we're walking around. And I'm going, oh yeah, this was built, you know, Elizabethan, 1500s. Oh yeah. And he'd look, and he'd look at the floor, and he'd go, lovely wood, lovely wood. And I'm thinking, yeah, that was restored about two years ago. Didn't have the heart to tell it. No, it's just like, you've seen the strangest things. We had all sorts of stuff, but I, I just, but when you, um, when you trained with him, I used to do a private lesson with him. I probably trained with him, oh, I can't even remember maybe four or five times in that two weeks and we'd just do an hour and a half. Yeah. But he didn't teach, he just used to, we used to spar. So we'd, we'd start close quarter and he'd be like, da, 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 ba, 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 ba. And first of all, he'd hit you and it'd hurt a bit. And the more we trained, the more he hurt me because he knew, A, that I could take it and two, that he liked me a bit more. Oh, yeah, that's the, that, I remember this, it's funny you said this because I remember, I think it might have been one of Pat O'Malley's uh, lines where he was over in uh, the Philippines and somebody said, Do you want to play? Yeah, and of course, he was like, Yeah, no problem. And then they were like, uh, No, that's a completely different ball game. I mean, yeah, I've heard Guru Dan say mm. it as well. It's like when he, he starts saying, he, I'm telling you this, how I'm teaching you this, but I learned this because I get hit on the knuckle. And mm-hmm. then if I try to do it another way from another teacher, you know, because obviously he was. He was in that unique position from his like through his father, like Sebastian. Yeah. Like, it was like he could he he'd be with five separate teachers, and all five of those guys would never talk to each other. Mm. So of course, that's one of the things I've always I've always admired about like about Danny Nosanto. It's like how can you be friendly with all those five people, and they and they all must have known. Richard told a story because I asked him lots of times. But I learned more from Richard in a car than I ever learned from him in a man. 
we would just talk on these long journeys where we used to do the tours all around England yeah. and stuff. And uh, we were talking about those early days in Stockton when they first went. Because Dan said to Richard, would you like to come to Stockton and we'll go. So what we used to do was once a month, they would drive up to Stockton, which was an eight hour drive, stay over during the night and then drive back the following day. Yeah. And he said, he said, Richard said to me, he said, us driving around like this reminds me of those days. You know, we'd get a, a flask and we'd have our sandwiches and that was the way. So. And then they'd go and train and train and train. So they'd train with Max Armiento one day and they trained with Angel Cabales another, you know, session. Yes. And, and that was it. And they all knew that they were training with each other. But it was good because they were Filipino guys and they were going to pr- promote the art. Richard said, I could never, in the early days, I couldn't work out why Dan was finding it so difficult. He said, because we'd be learning something, you know, I don't know, like an inside sweep and a, and a, and a gunting or whatever it was. Anyway, I'm looking at this stuff going, Dan, this is really easy. What are you struggling with? Anyway, so, so we, we drive back. And then by about Thursday, when they came to train again, he said, that fucker had worked out 12 different combinations. <laughs> yes. I'm just going, well, there's one there. And yeah. Dan, was, Dan wasn't struggling. He was working it all out. Yeah, yeah. And, and Richard said, that was the difference between him and me. He said, I could see it. He just completely transformed it yeah. and, and just took it all apart and rebuilt it by the time we came again Thursday. He said, it was absolutely incredible. He said, I could never have had a better training partner. And if you talk to Richard, he will say that um, Dan and Asanto had as much influence on him as any of his teachers. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it, well I was really surprised because it was through, you know, it's uh, just for the benefit of the guys listening in we're here today for Tony Pillage's Pissing on Pol Pot you're teaching and I'm teaching mm-hmm. and I actually met Richard Bastillo through Tony and I think it was probably the first time I met you as well and I, I was just amazed at what a cool guy Richard was but we spent more time talking about music mm-hmm. and motorbikes and the, what sort of motorbike you would have for a certain occasion and I was like this is a really cool guy and then we talked a little bit about martial arts and yeah, he said, you don't take any of it seriously, do you? And I'm not really. So, because again, it, it, that isn't why it is in my life. My life, it's a hobby to hang out with cool people, meet, meet guys like yourself and then go, right, you know, I know Andy Gibney's really interested in neuro-linguistic programming. I want to pick his brains on this. You know, and you know, where are you going to meet people like that in everyday life? You know, it's, it's crazy. And that's going to link me in hopefully too. You were one of the first guys I ever, ever read about that was studying NLP. Mm-hmm. What got you into that? Martin Hill again. Really? Yeah, yeah. I did, a, I did an interview in uh, Mars Arts Illustrated, Bob Sykes, to say, you know, when I do one. And uh, I've still never done a cover. But anyway, I've been in there a few times. Yeah. And, um, and one of the things that I was always interested in was, was having a different angle on it all. You know, so, so the different angle was, everyone's teaching Jeet Kune Do in a certain way. What can I do that's different that will attract uh, you know, a, a, uh, an audience, if you like. Yeah. So I was looking at all sorts of different things, and I was really interested in Tony Robbins, but I never saw the tape at that time period. So I, I did all this research into Robbins, and I did this interview, and then I got a phone call from Martin Hill, Sterling he was by then, and he says, uh, he said, we're interested in Tony Robbins. Thank you. He said, uh, what about Richard Bando? I said, who's he? He said, everything that Robbins does, he invented. Oh, so what's he do then? So he said, well, he teaches seminars in London with Paul McKenna. Oh, okay, I'll go and do that then. So anyway, I went off and, started and did my NLP practitioner course. There's about 700 of us that ended up doing it. And most people just went to see Bandler. Bandler was just an amazing storyteller, just a real rebel, mental, crazy man. Yeah. Uh, and McKenna was doing the hypnosis, and then a guy called Michael Breen, amazingly, um, was doing the, um, the structure of language. 
So we, right. did, we did the uh, we did the, the seven days. Then I did Unleash the Power Within with Tony Robbins in the summer. You, you come away from four days with, with, with Robbins on a different planet. And, and after I had done that, uh, the fourth, yeah, the fourth day is a health day. I'm like, oh, I know loads of stuff about health. Anyway, as a result of doing that, I went, I became vegetarian. Started doing weights again the following day. I'd left, hadn't done weights for 10 years. So it completely changed my outlook on health as well. Really? Yeah. And then I went back the following year and also the, the year after I did my hypnosis, did nine days of hypnosis. And, but at the same time, I was learning a thing called non-violent communication with uh, a lovely man called Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, who's now died a couple of years ago. Right. And um, that was probably the, one of the best forms of internal and external communication I ever learned. It's got nothing to do with violence at all, bizarrely. Terribly named, I suppose. And how, how did the, the non-verbal violence thing... Yeah. Explain that to me. Okay, so, so um, it's easier to explain with a story. So... so Rosenberg talks about two types of smiles that people have. He said when he was a Jewish kid, moved to Detroit from a, from a, um, a small town, and went to the school, got bullied quite badly. So he would be, he, he said most days he would run home from school. Sometimes he'd get away, sometimes he'd get caught. And when he got caught, these guys would beat him up. He said the ringleader always had a particular type of smile, which was just vindictive and nasty. Yeah. He said at the same time, his grandmother was suffering from uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, which obviously got the ice bucket challenge. Yes. So it got all that um, stuff. Uh, and she was in a, quite a bad way. Sometimes she'd, you know, she'd have messed herself by the end of the day. But when he said, when I saw my uncle helping her, he smiled with, completely with love. And he said to him one day, how can you do that? It must be so demeaning. He says, my mum, I love it a bit. Why, why would that be? Why would that be demeaning? So he said, I knew then there was two types of people in the world, the vindictive and the lovers, or the people who love the world, as it were. And he wanted to understand that more, so he became um, a devotee of, of psychology and became a family practitioner and then started working in prisons with really some quite nasty people, understanding their mentality. From there, that the non-violent communication developed and he worked in Palestine and Israel and worked in Rwanda just after the genocide. Wow. Incredible man. Absolutely incredible man. Unbelievable. So I had the privilege of uh, you know working with him for two and a half years, going to his seminars, and then working with his teachers in in um, Oxford, mostly in Oxford. Well, you, you, like this is if you want to know the truth, the it, the NLP stuff uh, from you has always fascinated me because you you wrote you wrote maybe I do there was this mm. there was this period of martial arts which was really funny because. Uh, and you were one of the first guys to start it, and then there was like everyone did it. There was, it, became, it became the new fad, and then it became a bandwagon. Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. And you were literally, uh, you were quite possibly. Like, oh, 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 I jumped on it, uh, but, but I didn't. I didn't jump on it because I wanted to become a life coach or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I jumped on it because I'm a social guy, and there were certain people I could connect with. And if you want to know the truth, my, I I had my money's worth just by understanding the, uh, understanding Vacock. As soon as I understood. Mm-hmm. And the, the minute that I understood that people got all their information just through their five senses mm-hmm. and just... Which is so bleeding obvious, it's unbelievable, it, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. And then when, when, <laughs> people, when people turn around and say, but you don't understand how I feel, you know, we need to touch base. Mm-hmm. And I'm ter- talking around to them and I'm throwing all this visual stuff at them. And you know, now that the hearing's gone, yeah. it, you know, I've really, it, it's, it's really helped me uh, with my communication skills and it, literally it wasn't the Catholic guilt thing where I wanted everyone to like me yeah. it was just like mm-hmm. how can I connect with 90% of the population but like 
the other 10%, I really dislike them or they really get the hump with me. I, I think the thing that I definitely learned was, was to JKD, the philosophy. So, so when in the last year or so, um, after when I was coaching the British team, I, I got it, for a year. I studied philosophies, you know, all sorts of Bruce Lee stuff and yes. Alan Watts and all that sort of stuff. But then, then I went to understand psychology, and it was Martin's conversation. I did the NLP, but I realised that people were looking at NLP as the next bloody panacea for everything, which was rubbish. Yes, you know, because so many of them didn't internalise, didn't work with it. All it did, just like martial arts. They did exactly the same thing. They learned all this stuff and then never used any. And went through the motions. And like, it, uh, do you know what? Just as he's saying that, the, the the way that I would look at it would be, you know, when you see people doing kata and they don't understand it, and they yeah, go, absolutely, kata's bollocks. And I, I used to see that with NLP. I'm mm-hmm. like, and like, yeah, I NLP. know. Look, no luck, pal. No, in Lord of the Rings has ruined the term Gollum now because you know now Gollum is my precious, my precious. But I like the the old Gollum, you know, the the Jewish the Jewish soulless creature. Yeah. And that's I used I used to call people all the time. I say he's a real Gollum, that guy. And they go really what? And I said yeah, you know, check your history. And they go wow. It's like orcs, isn't it? Orcs was an Anglo-Saxon word that, yeah. the norm, that they used for the Normans meant foreigners, didn't they? Yeah, and then, now it's been hijacked mm. because do you know what we? We have got, like, the time is against us, but we, I, what I want to do is, first of all, how many people know you're a world champion? I, I wasn't. I wasn't a world champion. I got silver twice. I thought you got No, 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 no. I, I, um, I trained world champions. I, I, uh, when, we, when we went in 2001, I was a British team coach. at oh, that's not bad, sorry. No, and, um, and I, I trained. We, we were the world champions that year. You know, we won the, as it were. It, it's not a generic title like there is with rugby or something like that but interestingly about four weeks ago three or four weeks ago I met Sir Clive Woodward uh, right. and, and, uh, and went to a, a thing that he did it was really interesting but the you know I, I've always said I did the same as Clive Woodward but I picked the wrong sport he became a knight and I'm here talking to me talking to you yeah. <laughs> so pick your sport if you're going to go for it but no I was never a world champion that's, that's one of the things that drove me and helped me to understand psychology how could I how could I train so hard and screw it up in the last moments, really? And I didn't watch, um, I didn't watch my final world title fight for 20 years until I was researching this book, so I was so pissed off with myself. And I didn't do bad, actually. I can see exactly what the difference was between him and me, and it could have gone either way, but if I'd have fought like I had in the four, four fights before, I'd have won. Uh, and tell us about the book. First of all, I love the title. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, the title is? Punching Above My Height. Punching above my height. Yeah, the, the the sequel part two is called Kicking Below the Waist. <laughs> Do you know that? Oh damn, they were the two titles I was going to use for my. Old <laughs> so tell us, what's it about? Well, it's about Jeet Kune Do, to be honest. Because if I wrote about me, who'd be interested? But um, can I read the first part? Yeah, I would be going for it. I'm, I'm, I wanted to write a book that was a, would appeal to people beyond martial arts. You know, somebody like sports books who like that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I'll read you the first two paragraphs. This is the introduction. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes I'll see a girl sitting at the side of a class during a seminar. On the mats, everyone is engaged in the words of the teacher, eyes wide open, minds whirring, sweat being spilt, and I'll look at the girl. She's bored as she's reading a magazine, sometimes shivering as the draft from the front door whips across her legs, or alternatively choking on the smell of stale sweat. Why is she there? She could be anywhere, shopping, out with her girlfriends, at the cinema, spending time with her mum. But instead, she's in a martial arts centre, bored out of her skull. And the reason she's there is to support her boyfriend, the big fella in the me- middle of the sweaty training hall, black t-shirt, almost wet through, 
perspiration dripping from his dark beard. He's having a glorious time and is proud of the pretty girl sitting on the side. She wonders why she ever agreed to come to be with him on this event for numbskulls, Neanderthals and toy soldiers. <laughs> Do you know what? That could be that could have been written about me and my wife. My, <laughs> honestly, my wife my wife is not interested in martial arts in any way, shape, or form now. But as she said, you know, for the first four years we were together. If I wanted to see, her, I came training. And she didn't. She didn't do any training. She used to sit there and read a book. Yeah, well, look, that was exactly what happened at Larry Hartsell. I took this gorgeous girl I was seeing. She came down with me to London, and she sat there for two days whilst I'm being literally taken apart and put back together again. And she's just like. Oh, God, this is boring. So, so that's and I see it a lot. You don't take your girlfriends to something no, no. mental like this. They're not, they're not, they're not interested. And this is as a, true of any sport too. You know, she doesn't want to watch you playing football, freezing her tits off in the middle of the winter. She doesn't want to watch you playing rugby with his blood and snot everywhere. What she wants to do is for you to come home and be happy, and that's it. And she'll go and do her own thing. Do you know what? That- so I wanted to I wanted to start with somewhere in a completely different place yes. to any other martial arts book I've ever read. And, and then what? Well. Uh, it's certainly not like Jim Harrison's book, you know what I mean? That, now, that is a good book. Uh, you know, that is a very, very... Uh, it, it, there is a very distinct lack of decent books in martial arts. And so we had the period, you know, I used to say it to Jeff, that for Jeff Thompson, for mm-hmm. at least 15 years, if there wasn't a picture of someone on the front with a botched up nose and an uncle does say, you weren't going to sell it, right? And... Uh, it, for me, they all seem formulaic. You know, Watch My Back was amazing. Yeah, it me. was. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah. That life. Seminal work, right? Uh, and, you know, I, I personally think it was because of the work. It wasn't just the zeitgeisty thing, you know. It, but it was the first one. Yeah, you know? yeah Again, absolutely. that's what yeah. you have to remember. Yeah. Everyone remembers Bruce Lee. No one remembers Bruce Lee or Bruce Lee. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's, if you're, if you're a pioneer... So what's the what's the next part? Because I see volume one. Yeah, well, it, it just got it got really big. That was a problem. So so this this sort of goes up to so um, it was my journey in martial arts. You know, for the stuff we talked about the traditional side, then getting into Jeet Kune Do. But I wanted to talk about why is Jeet Kune Do here in the first place? Bob Breen brought him over the first time. You know how Bob Breen met uh, Jay Dobrin. Yes. Ralph's impro- uh, Ralph training. Uh, you know his early influences. So I wanted to talk about the guys, not just me, because just about me, it really is dull. So um, then it was, how did it, you know, that, so the 80s and how that spread, you know, all these seminars, all these guys coming over, how I met Richard. Richard's story, part of Richard's story, you know, why is it called the Filipino Carly Academy? Why did they open it in Torrance? Why is it, you know, um, what happened after Bruce died? What happened when Bruce died? But Richard tells a wonderful story of, of the day that he heard that Bruce Lee died. Right. When uh, he got the phone call at three o'clock in the morning. You never ever get good phone calls at three o'clock in the morning. No. So someone said, oh, "Did you hear? Bruce has died." He was like, "What? What the hell?" Anyway, so he made a couple of calls. Yeah, it's true. And then he said, "This is three o'clock in the morning." He said, "Eventually, I fell back to sleep. I got up early. I went around to Dan's house, and Dan was teaching Bob, yeah, Bob Ward, the conditioning coach for the Dallas Cowboys, right. in his garage." He said, "I went round there, and they were just finishing up. And uh, when they finished up, I just said to Dan, you know, did did you hear?'" And he said, "Oh, yeah." And he said everything changed. And he, he went round his house, just saying this was Bruce's, and this was Bruce's, and I got this from Bruce. And when Richard told the story, he told it at the Jeet Do conference of 2000, Richard cried. And we were all like, fuck. Yes. Still those in tears, man. And then we didn't know what to do. There's like 80 people sitting yeah. there watching him on top table. And then he went, 
said, that fucker always makes one of us cry. And that was it, and he made us laugh. And that was it. But, it, you know, this was, this was in 2000, so it was 27 years, hit him so viscerally, you couldn't even tell the story. Well, well, this, this is, and that uh, story's in there. Well, it's, I, I know it's, uh, it's one, one thing, it's a bit of a pet hate of... And that's Pat Hay and Rick Young's because there'll always be the one guy that turns up who's like he's probably he wasn't born you know born '83 so ten years after Bruce has passed away mm. and he starts asking the Bruce Lee stories and um, you know Rick won't mind me saying but Rick was like people forget that it, people forget that he was a, he was a really good he was a really good friend yeah he was his best friend yeah yeah and, yeah you know it's like it really really upsets the guy and yeah I remember hearing that story and I was thinking. Yeah, but you know, with the passage of time, and then I was at a seminar once, and some guys started asking questions, and you could just see, you know, you could you could see. Gert, so Richard's different. Richard, Richard generally, he, he's happy to talk about Bruce. No problems yeah. at all. Um, I think he's compartmentalised it now, and of course, a lot of people that Richard has trained are dead now. You know, Kakoi died last year. You know, yeah. so there's it's going to happen. You know, there aren't many. Richard's the only original who still comes to the UK. Dan doesn't anymore because he no. goes to Germany and Spain and yeah. Italy. So he's the only person who knew Bruce Lee who comes to this country now, which is an amazing thought, really, when you do think about it. Well, it, it we never realised in the 80s and 90s what riches we had. No, do you know what? That's, I've said this so many times. Uh, I remember when I first started training, what you had was Rick Young would always be around Remembrance Sunday, right? Uh, then you only had to wait two and a half, three months. Phil Norman would have him at the end of January, mm -hmm. start of February. And then, like, uh, Independence Day, it was always the same. It was always around the weekend of, the, of July the 4th. Mm -hmm. Bob would have it. That's right. And it was like, you could get your hours in. It was no problems, you know. So, nowadays, it's like, literally, I, I have to work it now that I have to go to Spire. If I don't go to Spire, then I go to Minneapolis. And then, go, you know, it's like, oh, you have to go to Rome. And you're like, wow, man. And again, it's we we had no idea. We, we thought it was like going to Edinburgh. Yeah, Edinburgh. The Krauss used to have him as well, didn't they? At one time. Pardon me. The Krauss brothers used to. The Krauss brothers yeah. had him as well. They used to yeah. go up there as well. So you know, you do all these miles and these beat up cars, but we had so many laughs. It was a it was a real brotherhood, you know. And and those people, a lot of those people are still training, which is nice. Yeah. But that's what I wanted to write the book about. I wanted to write the book about the development of Jeet Kune Do, how it's changed. And, uh, and as I was writing it, I got up to, and, and then this complete explosion of stick fighting that happened in, I mean, Ralph introduced me to that as well in yeah. 1990. And uh, so the book goes up to, uh, when the hell does it go up to? Uh, we got up to 2000 with the Jikundo side and Richard, but it jumps back to, oh yeah, 95, I think it does. Because in 96, there was a big split between me and John Harvey and Pat O'Malley. Yeah. That all changed. And that was quite detrimental to Eskrima for some time. I think Eskrima's in quite a good place now because most people got never so well now. And yeah. things like but that. But you see, this will you know, link on to, like, this will be the final thing that we'll wrap up on, which I actually think is a pretty good way to wrap it because uh, if you ever read the magazine, and uh, most of the guys who listen to the podcasts, like that, they're aware of this, you know, like me and you are old enough to remember the Wing Chun Wars mm -hmm. and you're like they weren't really Wing Chun Wars it was a couple of guys arguing and you're like all they had to do was like the one thing I, I have to give Bob Bob Sykes is due for it's like yeah he just did it like proper northern song yeah, yeah, meet yeah, me yeah, on floor and I'll take a shirt off and yeah, we'll absolutely. have a yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was like fair play you know he, went, he, he had a go for it right and literally you know I've seen the footage and it's like it, it's, it's yeah, I've seen better fights in the car park mm -hmm. outside of Boozer you know what I mean uh and that that was actually that was two guys trying to make a style work where it was like now nah, we'll just fight now. But 
in the magazines they used to always have to there, you know there was like and it was it was a documented you know sort of split and rift in the JKD world mm-hmm. but I don't know about you but none of us seemed to really care anymore you know at the time it was like people were trying to make it into a huge thing well, well from my perspective from being part of that I mean I went off and formed the British Screamer Federation with a bunch of guys I'd been training before and we went off and we made some advances in this stick world and, and uh, I mean almost simultaneously Danny Guga showed up on British Shores through Mark Marshall uh, they had a falling out and I got in with um, Danny and Percival and so for about eight years I had Danny as my teacher I mean all the time you know so we'd be in and that hotel guy's no rooms. joke no absolutely Danny Cooper's no we'd, joke we'd, man we'd have we'd, we'd be in hotel rooms we did seminars all over the country I mean Danny's gone off to do loads of great stuff now you know yeah. um, but uh, but it all started the, the Dossi Paris syllabus was written by me I wrote it in a hotel room in Glasgow Danny brought over the original from from Juni in the Philippines, and there was only three belts. I said, Danny, this is too big. We need to split it down. So yeah. the colour belt system that they have, I wrote it. Really? Yeah, in a hotel wow. room in Glasgow. Jesus. And uh, so, so it was only about breaking it all down. It's because I understood it. What, what was I was so grateful for is it filled all the holes in. Yeah. Me and John Harvey used to talk about Hubbard and, and, and the difference between Hubbard and, and close quarter sparring with the Dossie Paris. What are these holes? How does this work? Danny taught me it all. And then I trained with Kako, completely different. You know, Kakoi was was supernaturally good. And you'd be going, oh, what's this? What's that? No, 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 what's this? Well, if I did this, what would I do? And I'd be jumping about all over the place. So it was it was the understanding of how it all fit together. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Danny went off and did his thing. I do my thing. But he still calls me up and we still talk all the time. Andy boy, I miss you. I miss you. <laughs> so where are you? Because I've always thought, I've always had this theory, um, much like if, yeah, Horry and Gracie hadn't have been such a you know, stick in the mud in regard to you know, the Machados calling it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Because they wanted to call it Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, but right. he was like, yeah, okay, but I want 10 cents on the dollar of everything you make. And they were like, whoa, come on, man. We're working out of a garage here at the moment. Yeah, help me well, out. That, that's, when, that's when they met Dan and Richard. Yeah. Richard and Dan. I think they hosted the first ever seminar. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, we had that. And then obviously I've I've always had this idea. I would I, you know it, we were instead of the UFC it wouldn't be the JKD fighting championships, but um, I really think the JKD world missed the trick. In, you know because MMA is JKD, really. You mm. know what I mean? But but you know a form it, a form of yeah, and we, we really relate to the party coming to that. And you know most of the guys I know who who were training never got involved in any of the real politics you know that was I, I actually remember somebody somebody sent me a message on Facebook so it was a picture of me and you uh, uh, me and you so I'm training and you're in the background it's at a Richard Bastillo seminar mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm it's actually here at Tony's yeah and uh, you're training one end I'm at the other end Richard's there I'm wearing a Santo t-shirt and this guy's asking me why I'm training there and I said because it's Richard Bastillo and he said but why are you training there and literally, I, you know, it was a random guy that we had like two mutual friends on Facebook. And I was saying, why? And he went, I thought you guys didn't get on. And I said, I know Andy better than I know you, mate. So, you know, how about fuck off? Yeah, that was it. I was like, sorry, man, I'm too, you know, I'm too stupid to get involved with that. But yeah, we, I, don't, I don't know. Do you, think, do you think there could have been an alternate reality somewhere where, that JKD would have been the UFC or had more of an input on it? 
No, not really. It's a particular type of person who I think it's a particular type of person that wants to push forward with UFC. I mean, Eric Paulson is the crossover guy. Yeah, you know there aren't many other. Oh, Ron Balik as well. But, yeah. but those two, I can only think of those two who've been had any success in the in that world. I think there's uh, there's a there's a real difference. I I personally think you know with. I think we really devalue the training when we just look at it because athleticism counts for an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... That's true of sick fighting as well. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's guys who want to be scholars and there's guys who want to be warriors and then there's guys who want to be athletes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's room for there's room for a bit of everything. I don't mm -hmm. know about you. On my good day, I feel like an athlete. But most of the time, I feel like a scholar and uh, I don't ever want to find out if I'm a fucking warrior or not. You know what I mean? Funnily enough, I'm starting. I'm starting my, my bit here today with two fights. One I lost and one I, one I won, and how they changed. How they changed everything that I did. Well, do you know what? On that note, because look at this time. You've got seven, six minutes before you got to punch in on the clock. That's right. But if you want to get the book, where do you get it from, Andy? Uh, you can get it on Kindle through Amazon, or you can contact me through andygibney.com or ufsjkd.com, I'll say that again in English, ufsjkd.com, uh, and we'll sell it direct to you if you want a hard copy. Um, we, we've, uh, I've got a bit of a thing about Amazon at the moment. They take too much of your money when you send them, but you can certainly buy it on uh, Kindle there, but if you want a hard copy, contact me direct, and I will send a copy to you. And I'm loving the American comic book thing that you've got on the front of it. Which yeah, is this is funny, isn't it? You know, first time I ever, uh, I've ever been made as a, as a cartoon character. As a cartoon. A lot of people have said I have been for a long time, to be honest. So it sort of fits. <laughs> so the new, the new book, we're gonna, we're gonna reverse everything. So we got the red on, on the back and the blue on the front. We're gonna do the blue on the back and the red on the front. And I'm gonna do the black t-shirt, no glasses. Well, that, the, 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 you sound like a comic book collector guy in uh, Simpsons. But do you know what, Andy Gibney, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks for asking me. Thanks. No worries. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. You can listen to more shows like this on MixedMartialArts.com. Mixed Martial Arts is an abrupt audio production. Today's show was produced by Luke Berry. Aww. To find out more about podcasting or get help with your own podcasts, head over to AbruptAudio.com forward slash start.